0: Again, we want to express our appreciation for the presence of each and every one, for this opportunity we have of God's people coming together upon the first day of the week to be reminded of the great sacrifice that our Lord and Savior has given for us by partaking of those elements representing the Lord's Supper and now having an opportunity to consider God's Word and to be strengthened by it. You know, when we have some item in our home, some item in our possession, and it breaks, it stops working, you know, sometimes people just say, well, you know, nothing lasts forever. And of course, when we're speaking about things in the material realm, uh, this is true. Empires fail. So uh, sometimes we're walking through Our Bible history. We talk about all these nations that no longer exist. Uh, They are simply, you know, uh, images on the pages of history. Empires fail. Kings die. Monuments are forgotten. I think I've mentioned that I've got a couple of books that were uh, paperback books that were issued by State Street Bank in Boston back in the 1940s about all the different uh, statues that are in the Boston area, and I remember growing up as a kid, I didn't know any of these existed, and we're talking about dozens and dozens. Uh, sometimes it's because the area where the statue is at has become overgrown. Sometimes the statue has been moved. So we have these idea of looking at these monuments that are forgotten. Sometimes they're destroyed, as we've experienced in the previous couple of years. Memories fade. Buildings crumble. Uh, These things can happen because of natural disaster or man-made. You know, sometimes people don't make things as well as they should and they don't last as long. Or sometimes we have to remove some older things to make way for newer things. Sometimes it's just the passage of time that things crumble and fall. But we also know that God will at some time destroy the material realm. Peter reminded us of this in his second epistle. 2 Peter chapter 3 beginning in verse 10. It says, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens shall pass away with great noise. And the elements shall melt with fervent heat, the earth also, and the works that are therein shall be burned up, seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved. What manner of persons ought you to be in all holy conversation and godliness? So Peter says everything that we can see at some point is going to be removed. It's going to be dissolved it says here in verse 12. God somehow it says is going to use some fervent heat that the earth, the moon, the stars, the planets and everything on the earth will no longer exist. But it's not true to say that nothing lasts forever. Material things don't last forever but the Bible reveals otherwise. I wanna think about that today. You wanna to think about that which is eternal. And when we're talking about eternal, what are we talking about? Well, as we have an example here, the, the Greek word, and, and it simply means an undetermined amount of time, an endless amount of time. And even though we say endless, it can be used in an accommodative way to refer to a time that we cannot count but a time that God can. And so we have the example that is found in Ephesians chapter 3 and in verse 11, it says according to the eternal purpose which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord. What is he talking about? He's talking about the unfolding of the gospel. That prior to man being created, God had a plan. And it was his eternal plan from the very beginning, before time existed, unto a time that he would then reveal. So in that respect, God had a time in mind, but a time that existed well beyond many human lifetimes. So again, it would be impossible for us to figure out from creation to the first century, exactly how much time existed. So we would say certainly thousands of years, even if we just dealt with looking at the biblical narrative, we would recognize 25 to 100 to 3,000 years as a short amount, but still that's well beyond anyone's lifetime. So when we look at this particular use of the term eternal, it simply means beyond lifetimes, beyond man's lifetime. But it is not beyond God's time frame in dealing with human existence because as the passage reveals God did reveal it while man was still living but then the 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 greater majority we deal with is that it is a time in dealing with that which cannot be defined Beyond human life. No human life is going to continue. So as we noted in 2 Peter chapter 3, uh, it is beyond the scope of the material realm, beyond the scope of human lifetime. What then is described in looking at that which is eternal well the first thing we want to consider and the most important thing we want to consider is that God is eternal as we noted previously in just our uh, reference to looking at what Paul mentions in Ephesians 3 there's a place that God exists and that is dealing with eternity. In looking at Revelation chapter 4 verse 8 it says. And the four beasts had each of them six wings about him. And they were full of eyes within. And they rest not day and night saying holy, holy, holy Lord God almighty. Which was and is and is to come. So these heavenly beasts define God as existing before time and beyond time. So time without measure. We, we can't measure time. You know, it's always interesting to me that we have a way of measuring things, don't we? We can measure things down to, you know, nanoseconds and all these different types of, of things. But in dealing with God, we lack the ability to accurately measure anything about Him. We, we can't measure the length of His existence. We can't measure the depth of His love. We can't measure the extent of his knowledge. We don't have that ability. So no matter what we do, we will lack in that realm. We have to allow God to define him to us and utilize terms that at the very least we can grasp, maybe even if we don't fully comprehend every bit of them. So the idea of God existing prior to creation and then God existing well beyond. Well, of course, if God created, God doesn't need creation if he existed before it wasn't necessary for him to live and if he's the one that's going to destroy it then he's going to exist well beyond it so we have that concept of time he is he was he is he will continue in effect to be Isaiah put it a little bit differently In Isaiah chapter 57 and in verse 15, he said, For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy. So Isaiah said that's his dwelling place. God's dwelling place is beyond our ability to measure time. And logically then, if that is the case, then any of the things that we would deal with within the realm of God are going to also be there. So in looking at Psalm 45 and in verse six, it says, thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of thy kingdom is a right scepter. So, So God's throne, his reign, his sovereignty, Is something that will never end there's never been a time nor ever will there be a time when God has not been sovereign it's not up to us to recognize his sovereignty it exists whether we recognize it or not it's up to us to take advantage of the blessings that he bestows upon us because of his sovereignty so God is eternal and as we noted Thus, anything dealing with God within the realm that he exists is going to be eternal. So his power is eternal. When Paul was inspired by the Holy Spirit to write to the Romans in Romans chapter one, verse 20 says, for the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen. Being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. So we think about God's ability to create. We can't do that. We can use the elements that exist to modify those elements and create other elements. But we can't, you know, with the snap of our finger or our voice create something that prior to that time never existed. Yes, people develop things, but they always use that which already existed. Even if we're dealing with thought, even if we're dealing with theories, they deal with things that already existed and use those to, to modify, to come up with something that is new. But the idea of bringing all life into existence Prior to any life existing, that's the realm of God. And so Paul, in writing to the Romans, said this is something that should be self-evident to to all people everywhere. And Paul said it's, it's made known that power of God and what God can do is made known through the gospel. Verse 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It is the power of God unto salvation. Jesus chastised the Sadducees because he said they did not comprehend, they did not fully understand the power of God or the power of his word. In Matthew chapter 22, the Sadducees came to him and they tried to manufacture this question in dealing with the resurrection and the woman who's married to all these different brothers in the resurrection, whose wife will she be? And so Jesus' simple response to them, in verse 29 of Matthew 22, he said, you do err, not knowing the scriptures, nor the power of God. When we don't understand God, and we don't understand what God can do, then we're just gonna walk in darkness and we're going to be in error as they were. It is that power, that guards us and keeps us in his fellowship. Peter, when he was inspired to write his first epistle in 1 Peter chapter 1 and in verse 5, actually verse 4. He says to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that fadeth not away reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. When we think about that power then in that realm of God you know we may not see it we may not even be aware of it but as Peter is mentioning God still exercises it and as such we are protected by it. So there's so much that is going on that obviously we cannot see. We are limited Physically, you don't know what's going on right now at Walmart. You can't see it, you can't hear it, and unless you have a phone, which if you do, please don't be watching what's going on at Walmart during the lesson. But you know, in dealing with our physical properties, we're limited to a time and a place. But God's not limited. He's working everywhere. He's working in every place throughout the world. And so when we deal with that power of God, it is beyond our scope. And that's what we're dealing with in thinking about the concept of eternity. Not simply beyond today, but beyond the exercise of all the tomorrows. What else is eternal? His word. The psalmist said, the righteousness of your testimonies is Forever. In other words, it's not going to end. God's word isn't just righteous for one group of people and then not for every group of people. Everything about God's word is righteous for every group of people. So uh, we think about maybe what Isaiah said in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 8. The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the word of God shall stand forever. God's word is not going to fail. In Psalm 119 and in verse 144, the psalmist said, The righteousness of thy testimonies is everlasting. In Psalm 119, we look through a different concept of God's Word throughout Psalm 119. The psalmist is constantly making these references to the different characteristics, the different concepts, the different traits in dealing with God's word. So it not only lasts forever, but then later on in in Psalm 119, uh, actually earlier in, in Psalm 119, verse 89, he said, Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. So it not only is something that is forever, But once it is given, it is settled, settled. so it's not going to change. Well, what does that mean for us then in in thinking that uh, God's word is not going to change? Well, first off, conferences, synods, etc., they're a waste of time because they can't change his word. What do we see on a regular basis but some headline of some religious organization, some religious group, getting together because now they have to discuss marriage and divorce, or they have to discuss uh, homosexuality and lesbianism, or they have to discuss transgenderism. No, that's already taken care of. We don't need to discuss it. We just need to read it and obey it. In the beginning, God created male and female. That That took care of it. That takes care of any other arrangement, takes care of any other gender. All of those things are settled. And it doesn't matter if we've got a membership of you know 100 million people or a billion people worldwide and the majority of them are in agreement with whatever we have just decided on, that's not going to change God's Word. It's not going to enhance God's Word if you agree with it and it's not going to take away from God's Word if you disagree with it. It only changes you. And so they're a waste of time because you can't change His Word. Man cannot change God's Word And make it continue to be God's word. Evil men think that they can remove God's word. We have one such example of that during the time of of Jeremiah. They the king tried to keep Jeremiah quiet, put him in jail. God still gave him a revelation. So Jeremiah called this one servant of his, an individual named Baruch, and he said, God's given me this revelation. Now I need you to take this scroll and I need you to take it to the king and I need you to read it to the king. So in verse, uh, chapter 36 of Jeremiah, verse 5, Jeremiah said, I am shut up, I cannot go to the house of the Lord. Therefore go thou and read in the roll which thou hast written from my mouth, the words of the Lord in the ears of the people of the Lord's house upon the fasting day. Also thou shalt read it in the ears of all Judah that come out of their cities. It may be they will present their supplication before the Lord and will return everyone from his evil way. For great is the anger and fury that the Lord hath pronounced to God against this people. So he takes it. But the king has been warned that this message from Jeremiah is coming. And so it says in verse 21, the king sent Jehudi to fetch the roll. He took it out of Elishama the scribe's chamber. Jehudi read it in the ears of the king and in the ears of all the princes which stood beside the king. Now the king sat in the winter house in the ninth month and there was a fire on the hearth burning before him. And it came to pass that when Jehudi had read three or four leaves, he, the king, cut it with the penknife. And cast it into the fire that was on the hearth. Until all the roll was consumed in the fire that was on the hearth. So the king says, I don't like what I'm hearing. And this prophet has written that. So he pulls out his knife and he begins to cut the scroll and just throw the pieces in the fire. You know, we have such a limited understanding of What God does and what God says. To think that if God were to write something down, that if I'm to take it and I throw it away, that that destroys it. Once God's word goes forth, it is forever. Whether I have it written or not. But evil men think that I can just remove God's word, I can just throw it in the fire. As the psalmist noted, that once God's word is stated, that settles it. Thy word is settled forever. Unlike man, God can see what the end result will be. Thus, there are no need. There is no need for God to correct things. You know, I don't know how many times I can write something and I can use the spell check and I can do all that stuff and I go back and I see something that has to be corrected. You know, uh, my mind sometimes works faster than my fingers do, and there may be that I've left out a little word like "be." or I write there, T-H-E-R-E as T-H-E-I-R, and, you know, totally uh, not, N-O-T as K-N-O-T, so I will do all these things all the time. I'm just, you know, going so fast, and I'll go back, and I'll think, yeah, that looks really good, and then I go, and then I do my, uh, you know, inspection, and I go, oh, that's wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong. We have to do that, because humans make mistakes. God didn't make any mistakes. There's no need for God to go back and change anything. That's why when when someone comes out and they say, oh, we have a newer testament, and then you find, well, you guys, you know, you might have had a newer testament, but it obviously didn't come from God because you had to correct it 30 or 40 times within the first 10 years. Changing words, not simply that you've got the wrong tense, you've got the wrong word, you've got the wrong place, you've got the wrong people, that's when you know it comes from man. That's why we can say we don't have any fear of people examining God's word. There are no mistakes made. There are no contradictions that are made. In John being given the blessing of the book of Revelation, We read in Revelation chapter 22 verses 18 and 19. He said for I testify to every man that heareth the words of the prophecy of this book. If any man shall add unto these things. God shall add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. And if any man shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy. God shall take away his part out of the book of life and out of the holy city. And from the things which are written in this book. Now when we think about that. When we think about. Uh what John writes, it should first and foremost be a realization done to us that God said, don't do it. But then beyond that, don't try to do it. Now someone I heard one time say, well, isn't that just for the book of Revelation? And I thought, okay, let's think of that logically. Was God just saying in this one book, don't change anything. But if you don't like what's in Matthew, go right ahead. If you don't like what's in Acts, go right ahead. Well, of course not. When he says it in one place, dealing with his word, he's dealing with everything and dealing with his word. Don't change anything. What that means for us is whatever God promises, he ensures they're going to be fulfilled. Just as we started in in looking at that verse in Ephesians chapter 3 and we dealt with God's purpose, God purposed something from eternity, it might have taken thousands of years beyond lifetimes of anyone, but God fulfilled it. That was in effect his guarantee. And and that deals in effect with every single generation. What else is eternal? Christ's reign is eternal. The Hebrew writer begins Hebrews chapter one by reminding us that Jesus isn't simply a man. Jesus is the son who came to this world. And talks about the fact that he's created to be man. But in effect he's greater than the angels or any created being. Even other beings in heaven. And he emphasizes that through the fact that he said. Did God the father at any other time refer to anybody else? Verse 8 of Hebrews 1. Unto the son he saith thy throne O God is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. We already made reference to this in in Psalm 45. And so the inspired writer is telling us that the son has all the same qualities as the father. The divine Godhead all exists together having the same qualities. Thus what could be said of one is said of the other. If the father inhabits eternity and His throne is eternal, and the Son is with the Father, then it stands to reason that the Son and His reign on the throne is also eternal. The Father's promise to the Son is that this throne and His reign is eternal. And if God's word is eternal and it cannot be changed, then thus it is so. However, we wish to describe this time His throne is forever. Whatever term we wish to use. Whether we want to limit it to human lifetime or beyond human lifetime. It's not going to diminish the fact that God stated it is forever. Every creature. Revelation 5 verse 13 said. Which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth. And such as are in the sea. And all that are in them heard I saying. Blessing and honor and glory and power. Be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the lamb forever and ever. How else could God reveal for us an understanding that his throne exists beyond our time frame? Man inhabiting the flesh is limited. We do not live forever. But Jesus is not man. Jesus is God who came in the flesh to die for our sins. John chapter 1 beginning in verse 1. It just simply says in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him. Without him was not anything made that was made. Verse 14, the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. So I think we, we clearly understand all of those concepts of dealing with beyond time as also making reference to the Son, as well as the Father. And only he who is eternal can help every person in every generation. In Ephesians chapter 1 beginning in verse 18 Paul was inspired to write the eyes of your understanding being enlightened that ye may know what is the hope of his calling and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints and what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe according to the working of his mighty, mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come, and hath put all things under his feet, gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all when the Hebrew writer in Hebrews chapter seven and eight and nine makes a comparison in dealing with Jesus as our high priest and high priests under the old covenant, he makes reference to the fact that they could not continue in their role as a high priest because they died. So however long their life was from the time that they were made high priest, whether it was 30 years, 40 years or 50 years, They eventually died and a new high priest had to come in. So each generation might have had their own high priest, but it never lasted beyond that. But then he makes the case, but Jesus is eternal. He's everybody's high priest for every generation beyond this life. There is no discontinuing, there is no change We see that concept of change on a regular basis. We experience it in the political realm every two or four or six years. We see it in the religious realm when some false religion has their head to die and now they've got to vote somebody else in there. We see the passing of things and the limited ability that they have. And so, making a contrast to that which is eternal should easily help us to understand in dealing with Jesus as our Lord, as our Sovereign, as our High Priest, that He continues forever. Well, then, what are some of the benefits of that relationship? Our sins and iniquities are removed. God said in Hebrews chapter eight, verse twelve, "I remember them no more." That's permanent. They're not put in a lockbox in a safe somewhere, and when we Do something wrong, they're brought out, and God says, okay, I'm bringing this back. He says, they're gone. Sins and iniquities, remember no more. Our fellowship with him exists beyond the earth. On the night of his betrayal, as we have the account found in John 17, as Jesus prayed to the Father, it says in verse two, as thou hast given him power, speaking of the Son, over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. So he said, when he gives to the faithful eternal life, it exists beyond this realm. When Jesus, excuse me, visited with Nicodemus in John chapter 3, He said in verses 15 through 17 that whosoever believeth in him, speaking again of the Son, should not perish but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. So several times Jesus makes reference to the concept of salvation in him past this life into eternity. It is the purpose behind the revelation of the gospel to make us aware of this eternal concept of fellowship. First Peter chapter five, verse 10, Peter was inspired to write, but the God of all grace, who hath called us unto his eternal glory, By Christ Jesus. After that you have suffered a while. Make you perfect. Establish. Strengthen. Settle you. He's called us. Unto his eternal glory. How does he do that? By Christ Jesus. So we have this guarantee from the father. That the reign of the son. Is an eternal one. Well, the final thought is that our souls are eternal. Jesus in Matthew chapter 16 talks about the need to follow him, to take up our cross daily and follow him in, in verse 24. But then he said in verse 26 and thinking about that concept of, of sacrifice, what, what would this mean to do that? verse 26 he just said what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul and I think one of the thoughts that should be presented there is what can I compare the value of my soul to that exists in this realm if everything in this realm is going to be destroyed and again the answer is there's nothing there's nothing that can compare to it. Because of this, we get to decide where our existence is going to be. Matthew chapter 25, Jesus talks about the judgment. Matthew 25 in verse 31 says, When the Son of Man shall come in the glory of all the holy angels with him, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory. Before him shall be gathered all nations. He shall separate them One from another, as a shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats, and he shall set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. But then it says in verse 41, then shall he say also unto them on the left hand, depart from me ye cursed into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Verse 46, these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into life eternal. So we have two terms that are used there, everlasting and eternal. But what's what's interesting to me is that some people want to negate hell's punishment By saying that, in effect, the word eternal simply means age-lasting. In other words, it's not an eternal fire. It is limited to a known time. It's not without end. You know what? I don't really feel the need to argue that concept. If someone wants to somehow think that eternal in this regard in just dealing with hell, not dealing with heaven, but in somehow just dealing with hell, doesn't really mean without end. That at some point it's gonna be mitigated. Then you know, I have a a simple question. How long is too long to spend in hell? And how short is short enough? In other words, what they're trying to say is, Hell is not gonna last forever, okay? You're not gonna be in this place of torment for worlds without end. Okay, how long is long enough? God says that if you don't obey, you're gonna be separated and you're gonna go to hell. Is there any way to mitigate that? Is there any way to say, okay, I think I can deal with that? Because when we deal with the power of God, we're reminded that we serve a God whose knowledge and ability and power is far beyond the scope of our understanding. Whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear for our God is a consuming fire. So the Hebrew writer in Hebrews chapter 12 makes a comparison in dealing with the old covenant and the mountain and the fire and the rumbling and destruction and all those things. Someone says well if you go to hell you're not going to be there for eternity. Well, what if you're there for 10 minutes? What if you're there for an hour? What if you're there for a day? In other words, how short is short enough that I'm willing to deal with it? Or how long is too long that I feel that I have a right to question God's concept of judgment? Anybody who wants to say it's not going to be for eternity, that's not going to change anything. It's not going to somehow make it more acceptable. It's not gonna somehow make God to be a better God because instead of it being a 100 years, it's now 10. There's still punishment. I mean, eventually what they're just gonna have to say is, which I think they already have, there is no hell. There's no hell, don't worry about it. Everybody gets saved. But then we have to say, well, Jesus must have had it wrong. And if Jesus had it wrong, he's not the son. If he's not the son, we're not saved. If he's not saved, we're still in our sins. And guess where we're going in sin. You you can't have one and ignore the other. If you're going to say hell isn't eternal, then why not make the argument heaven isn't either. But if you're going to say heaven is eternal and the same word is used for hell, you can't mitigate the one and extend the other. You can't have it both ways. Paul simply reminds us in 2 Corinthians chapter four, what is in store for the child of God. 2 Corinthians chapter four, beginning in verse 16. He said, for which cause we faint not, but though our outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. We cannot compare the temporary with the eternal. We don't have the means to do that. Our minds can't comprehend everlasting and understanding what it truly means. But our everlasting God promises in his everlasting word Which is guided by his everlasting and eternal power. That his son's sacrifice provides everlasting life. And only to those who obey his word will he give that everlasting life. And only to those who obey his word can they have the blessings of serving the the son on his eternal throne. And you can choose the everlasting that you want. It's within the realm of your choice today. You can have heaven or you can have hell, but only one can be yours through obedience to the gospel and that is the eternal realm of heaven. That's the purpose that Jesus came. He said on the night of his betrayal, he came that we might have eternal life. Peter said that it's guaranteed through the gospel. What more could God do? To impress upon you the need for us to obey the gospel. That we could be with him. Believing that Jesus is the Christ. Confessing him as such. Repenting of your sins. Being baptized for the remission of your sins. That God would take the atoning blood of Jesus Christ. To cleanse your soul spotless and free. Bring you into his household. Guide you with his word. Place your feet on the path of righteousness. That leads to his eternal throne. Where you can be with him for time without end. And if there's anyone we can help to obey the gospel this morning, please let us know while we stand and while we sing.